0: Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector.
1: Now that 2020 is behind you, it's time to grow. Organizations thriving in the face of uncertainty and who will emerge better are doing so by adapting quickly, pivoting to donor-centric fundraising, and building a bridge to connect supporters to their story. How can your nonprofit become nimble, innovative, and responsive like that? Learn how at the Responsive Nonprofit Summit. Join us April 14th and 15th, 2021 for the Responsive Nonprofit Summit, a free two-day virtual learning experience for forward-thinking nonprofit fundraisers and leaders like yourselves, hosted by Virtuous. This is not your typical virtual event. You'll be front row with world-class nonprofit and thought leaders, participate in hands-on discussion-driven workshops during breakout sessions, and build lasting connections with like-minded peers. From the latest in fundraising and marketing to in-the-trenches case studies, get the insights and connections you need to grow in 2021 and beyond. Register today to save your free seat at virtuous.org forward slash Rainmaker. Hey everyone, Uh, welcome to the show today. I'm honored to be speaking today with Mark Pittman. So Mark is an international leadership coach and fundraising trainer who helps nonprofit board members and staff get excited about asking for money. He's the founder of the Concord Leadership Group and fundraisingcoach.com, which is recognized by The Atlantic as one of five philanthropic blogs fundraisers need to read. That's a huge compliment. His latest book is The Surprising Gift of Doubt, use uncertainty to become the exceptional leader you're meant to be. He's also the author of Ask Without Fear, which that's a book that's right across from me on my uh, on my bookshelf right now and I highly recommend it fundraisers if you don't have a copy you got to go grab one. He's the executive director of the Affordable Fundraising Training Program, the Nonprofit Academy, and in his multitude of roles, Mark speaks to thousands of fundraisers and leaders every year. He's been featured as a guest in a diverse list of TV, radio, and print outlets including Chronicle of Philanthropy, Real Simple, Success Magazine, Al Jazeera, and Fox News. And you know what, Mark? You don't often hear those last two names in the same list anywhere. So kudos to you for bridging the ideological divide.
0: Thank you. I thought that was pretty cool. If I'm accepted by both or interviewed by both, then there's something's something's good.
1: For sure. Well, (laughs) welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. This is a tremendous honor. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to jump into this. Before I do, take a few minutes and tell us a little bit about the new book.
0: Oh my goodness. I'm, this is exciting to me. The Ask Without Fear was a, um, was a fun book to write and I've loved talking about it, but the surprising gift of doubt is my answer to when people say, what do you do? <laughs> I say, I'm an executive coach. And they're like, oh, okay. And then you see that kind of concerned look on their face. Like, I don't really understand what that is. So what do you do? Um, including really close friends that I talk to every week so this has been what I've been doing for the last 18 years as an executive coach but it's putting it out in a framework that people can do it on their own too back when I was starting out in fundraising uh, one of my early mentors was a guy named Dave Dunlop who amazing giant in the fundraising field in the 20th century and um, he made me promise that whatever i did with fundraising that i would make it accessible to volunteers he was really scared about the hyper specialization (laughs) of the field and i feel like this this book is in that vein of trying to make it so that anybody can can grow it doesn't have to be just people that contract with me or people that can come to where i'm doing an intensive which i love that too very cool so where do people go to get the book Everywhere, everywhere okay. fine books are sold. We've got it. It turns out uh, the day of this recording, uh, somebody got that at their independent bookstore. They they did a pre order, and the independent bookstore had it even even though it's two weeks early. Uh, it'll, it it launches March twenty third, and uh, so but it's available for pre order all over the place. Awesome. All right. Well, let's jump into this. So I'd love it. Uh, you know, you you shared a little bit about it, but
1: if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about your personal leadership journey, you know, mm. what got you to where you are today in your career. And how much was intentional versus circumstantial?
0: (laughs) That's a great question. Uh, I kind of found myself falling into leadership positions growing up. It just seemed obvious that certain groups needed to have a leader or needed someone to just kind of coordinate things. Um, I have now found that part of that, I thought that was because of my own natural giftings and, and wonderful personality. I have now found that there have been systems that have been set up for men of my my skin tone and uh, you know genetic makeup to also be more accepted in those situations. So I've learned that it's not it's not necessarily all me. <laughs> but um one of the weird things about my my upbringing was my family, I had schoolwork because I was in school, but my family gave me homework as well. And so, from as a teenager, I was reading uh, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, mm-hmm. Norman Vincent Peale, Power of Positive Thinking, uh, Frank Betgers, How I Raised Myself from uh, Failure to Success in Selling. I was listening to Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy, Bob Berg. I had these, uh, just I was steeped in a kind of sales and goal setting culture, which was really really cool. Because when I became into fundraising, not only was I able to quickly articulate those two nonprofits cuz when i started in fundraising 25 years ago um <laughs> sales was the s word you didn't talk about right. that was not we're not in sales we're in development we're not even in charity we're in development cuz we're developing relationships all right that's that's fine fair enough but uh, my first talks uh trainings and all were in 1999 translating sales literature for fundraisers it was oh. really it was so cool that i got to be the i don't know the translation person for that and uh, people liked it. and and the the tactics and the the idea of chunking things down and setting sizable goals and all just made sense for people. So um, at sixteen, I made a commitment also to going back to sixteen, I made a commitment to not live on one income only. I wanted multiple streams of income. That was part of my upbringing, I guess. Um, so I had always thought I would be doing other things. And in my journey, coaching had been helpful for me uh, as it, it helped me grow. And be a better person, which helped me do my job better. So it became really clear in 2003 that after I had a master's in organizational leadership, it just seemed like coaching was what I wanted to do. I didn't Consulting is awesome. And we have great consultants. um, But I wanted to be the person that really brought out the brilliance in people, the brilliance that was already in there. I wanted to help them uncover that and so that's i've been doing that since then i've also in the meantime i've had jobs in on and off uh and uh pastored a church my my wife had me do a get a job what because pastoring the church was a full-time volunteer position so she didn't want to have two full-time volunteer positions fundraising coach and pastoring a church <laughs> she thought it would be important with our kids to have some sort of income coming in which was smart she's very very smart uh so but i've been getting i've been able to do that and i've been doing this Conquer leadership group as what was birthed out of fundraising coach because board members and other leaders kept coming to me too and they're they're a little confused by the fundraising coach moniker so <laughs> um I, I was more than glad to to help them hire me as well <laughs> <That> was <laughs> totally <sure>. fine <laughs> for sure
1: talk to me a little bit about you know in, in your own leadership journey and as you're coaching and advising other leaders, what values do you see are most
0: important in a successful leader? one of the values that I think and I don't know if this is a value per se, but is the taking responsibility, mm-hmm. not being a victim mm-hmm. um, the leaders that are seem to be moving things forward and in leadership just it's probably important that we get this squared away is there is positional leadership with titles and all, but I really think of leadership as influencing others. So all of us have some level of leadership because we're all influencing some people. And for fundraisers, of course, that is our job, is to influence people to take action. So there's leadership involved there. Um, So, but taking responsibility and not, what I love about that is that you don't become a victim as much. And I understand that, um, again, given some of the constraints of, of my upbringing, I have some blind spots in that area, but what I love is if a donor is not responding or if a staff member is not responding correctly, it could be on them, but take, being able to take responsibility also lets you take some reflection See, maybe I'm not communicating effectively. Maybe they don't like the, the wall of gray that I put in the, the uh, direct mail appeal. Maybe I should chunk it up and do some underlines and bolds. So I think that's a big one. I think the the other quality is a self-learning or an ongoing lifelong learning kind of Mm -hmm. value, a value for continually improving. The leaders that have checked out are sad Uh, and it gets tiring to be a leader for sure, but it's really sad to see people that are just so burnt that they've just decided that they're not going to learn anything new and they get really frustrated with the new employees that are coming in or new staff members or volunteers because they're so unreasonable. And that just, you know, part of my heart just kind of, tears a little bit <laughs> because that's not how they started. Uh, but our systems are often set up that, in ways that really destroy people and destroy the, some of the, the best leaders get really worn down by them, unfortunately. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Talk to
1: us a little bit about how you've seen, or maybe how you've personally done this, but how, how some of the best leaders build culture successfully in organizations, and then also what some of the biggest mistakes are that you've seen around culture building.
0: Wow. Well, I guess it's also built on the values question, because one of the things I was I, I think is really important is for leaders to get clear on their values and really understand what their values are personally and what their values of their organization are. But leaders that seem to really do well, it they don't have to, it's not extrovert or introvert, it's not people-centered or task-centered, but I think it's a um, definitely there's got to be a care for the nurturing of the people around them. And that is... Counterintuitive when you, if you've ra- kind of grown up through the ranks of an organization, because your first entry level jobs are, you're graded on, your performance is graded on getting stuff done. And it's task completion that gets you the promotion. But as you get promoted, then you have to have people skills with that task completion. It's not just your expertise in an area. And as a senior leader, or a CEO, executive director, you have to be have an ability to let other people be brilliant. You know, it's it's actually counterproductive if you have all the answers. You become the bottleneck, and that isn't good for any organization. So, I think it's uh, there's this interesting ability. If you've been around a really great leader, they make you better, a better you, uh, and then I think there's a trust that's that seems to be common among great leaders. They trust the people that they bring on the team, even when the team members don't necessarily trust themselves yet. They There's an, an environment of, like there's one organization, Feed the Hungry in Indiana, where the across the organization, there's an expectation that everybody is taking two hours of their work time to do professional development. And I think that, that they're growing by leaps and bounds in their fundraising aspect. But I think part of it's because there's this incorporated into the expectations of their work week is the fact that they don't have all the answers and they're going to have to learn and grow another one uh, there was a leader of an organization that unfortunately no longer exists but that wasn't because of his leadership by <laughs> any means um, but he uh, was in a tight race to be uh, ceo of this organization and the second person that was also there he stayed on as a vp Um, And he started bringing her into all the conversations and all the decisions that he was making Uh, succession planning. Actually, it turned out to be really strong succession planning, but um, he, he had two other people come in and all the situations where it'd be normally just a CEO. He was training them about what the thought process was and he was asking their opinion. And then when he didn't, if, if he made a decision against their opinion, he was able to explain it to them. And there, there's a, a real, it, first of all, it built a huge resilience into the organization. He died 18 months later, uh, tragically from a heart attack, and the organization was able to continue serving the people it served as well as mourn, uh, because there was people knew why decisions had been made and they knew what you know they knew what was going on. It wasn't a black box trying to figure out somebody else's notes, but there was also a tremendous humility in bringing people into those conversations because. The higher you move up in an organization, the less supervision you get, and it can get a little a little scary. It can be a little bit like the man behind, you know, Wizard of Oz. Don't look at the man behind the curtain, Um, and he let people into the in behind the curtain. And I think that there's that that is good. Um, The negative ones, I think, are where people get hurt so much that they start uh, becoming really closed and, understandably, trying to be they're defensive, but they're trying to protect themselves because. They've gotten attacks from board members or uh, staff members that are just not trained on how to be staff yet. They're not trained on what it's like to work in an organizational setting where uh, you, there are long times of hours put into some project without reward. You don't level up. You don't. It's just work. It's just what you do. So some of those leaders, um, the the hurt then becomes toxic, and it kind of extends down there. I think of those as the people that are really, really hyper focused on. C- punching a time card, hmm. um, and understandably, we need work, you know, we want to get paid equitably and all, but they, there's a hyper focus on the rules and the uh, procedures. And, you know, <laughs> I should say this too, some people, that's how, that's their love language. They they get, sure, yeah. and you want that, you want your prospect researcher, you want your CFO, you want your, <laughs> there are certain people that you want to have that, but um, there's a, a way that it, become, it can become toxic and that's that's really sad to see with leaders. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, just a quick follow up on that. Hey. Yeah, yeah.
1: say you are living in that toxic environment, like other than hiring you, and maybe that's the answer. But how how can someone who maybe they're not the C in the C-suite, right? They're they're just yes. coming to work and they're like, man, this kind of sucks, right? You know, um, how how can they start to influence the culture in a meaningful way? And and what are some steps that someone like that can take? To, to bring to light what's going on in a way that doesn't put their job at risk?
0: Well, I don't know if I can promise that it won't put their job at risk. Okay, because, fair enough. Because uh, certain things are built in a certain way and people don't like people that rock the boat um, okay. or calling the question. Um, one of the things I think the the first place that most of us can start is by keeping, um, having integrity with the appointments we make with ourselves. So whether it's a lunch, forty-five, you know, half-hour lunch time, or a commitment to do something, I actually learned in my roles to block out time on the calendar, which were meetings with me, so people couldn't get have access to me because I needed to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. I didn't find to-do lists as helpful as scheduling my to-dos. Sure. Um, but what that did was that built a respect for my time. Uh, and what Stephen Covey has this wonderful two spheres, uh, two. Sp- two-sphere model where he says there's the sphere of concern and the sphere of influence. The f- sphere of concern is huge. It's global peace. It's anything that we could be concerned about. Hmm. The sphere of influence is the stuff we actually have power over. And so I think people that are in that middle management or staff's role can look to see where's the sphere that I have power over. Is it the event committee that I'm working with, with the volunteers? Is it the ordering the snacks for the snack room where's my real control and then doing that with integrity because what happens is the more you keep those promises to yourself and you, your it, your influence starts growing and your sphere of influence gets bigger into your sphere of concern because people realize they can rely on you hmm. um, so one of the promises to keep and and this seems so simple but it's uh, I hope people don't lose the power in it but it's if it if you if somebody asks you to do something give them an honest estimate, of what the time is going to be, not just say, yeah, I can get that done this week, but know yourself and figure out how, what is it, how do you schedule time? How, how long does things, do things take for me minutes for my board meeting that I had to write, even though we had a secretary, I don't know why I had to write it. Cause he was supposed to do that. I thought, um, the board chair secretary, but, uh, I had to take three to four hours And it felt embarrassing every month. But if I took three or four hours right after the meeting, then there were minutes to approve at the next monthly meeting. (laughs) Um, So as you're starting to make those commitments to yourself, then you can expand because um, usually people aren't going to, you know, I've I've seen a lot of people that want to address things that don't, that kind of, put the blame on somebody else's doormat the uh one one example from when i was (laughs) pastoring a church um i had a number of full-time volunteer pastor and i had people come to me and show problems and they were right these are big these are issues there's you know something with the building something else there's people relationships whatever um and i finally started telling them and i would also say this remind people from time to time uh as a congregation so it wasn't just pinpointing people but um, I would say, you know, my cat likes to, I don't know if she thinks I'm not eating enough, but sometimes she likes to get a rodent and leave it on my doormat. And she'll you know, she leave a mole or a mouse there. And um, I think she's helping. That's why she's doing that. I think it's a maternal instinct. But all I see is there's a, a problem on the doormat, and now is extra work that I have to do to clean it up. So the next time you pinpoint this problem, you've probably been gifted with an ability to see that. And that's great. Because you've got that ability, could you also give like three or four different ideas of ways we might be able to address this? And it was amazing to watch them just feel imp- you know, the, the true honor of, oh, yeah, I do see something that nobody else has seen. But it was also helpful for me to that because you know what I was going to do next was delegate it. Yep. Oh, those three <laughs> things are good. I like number two. Would you, can, would you be empowered? You know, you're empowered to do that. Why don't you go ahead and do that? <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant.
1: Uh, you mentioned a minute ago you used the word "toxic," and it's got me thinking about toxic employees, right? Like, I had a conversation oh, yeah. this morning with an organization, and, and they're going through a situation with a toxic employee, and, and you know it, it just strikes me that maybe it's true everywhere, but I've, I've found in my 21 years of working in the nonprofit sector that there's such a high reluctance to dealing with toxicity in the worst the
0: hmm. workplace, worst- worst- right? And you probably to have... the point where entire organizations are built around the toxicity. Yes. Like, it is really dysfunctional. Where that, yeah. Oh, I've seen this on Okay, good. I thought it was where, just me. I no, mean, like, the entire systems if, for an outsider to come in, you're like, why is it like this? Until you realize how toxic and it's like the frontline employee at the desk is. Or, yeah. And uh, in, in two roles, it was the frontline employee and the whole organization just kind of bent over into pretzel shapes to not offend that one person. Well, and and there's
1: this mentality that, like, we can't let this person go. We don't want to deal with the situation and make it better. Let's right. just move them around, right? <laughs> you know, and, and I I liken this for this person this morning. I said, well, that's like a doctor finding cancer in your lung and saying, we're not going to get rid of it. We're just going to move it to your leg and see if it gets better.
0: And then we'll move it to your pancreas if that doesn't right. work. That's like, really like that's interesting. That's just stupid, right? <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> so So help us think through what are some concrete steps that leaders can take to deal more effectively and more honestly with? Well, because it, it really the
0: hurts the people around them. When you're yeah. catering to a, a bad actor, someone who's not doing the work, it brings the whole morale down in the office because, and you may not even notice it. You, what you notice is when you let that person go, how light the whole, and it's, it's almost like a heaviness is lifted. Uh, in those situations where we've done it. I think there are a couple of things. um, One of them is I think a lot of leaders get promoted to leadership without having training. Mm, Um, They're good at stuff, and so they get promoted. And boards and nonprofits, but I I see this in for-profits some too, there's not really good places to figure out how do you get trained as a leader or um, having connections with other leaders. Because most of us feel like we're dealing with this stuff ourselves. Everybody else seems to have it together. It must be me that's weird or broken or Faulty. So, one of the healthiest things is to get together with other leaders, either in a, in a state nonprofit association or in your community. They get it. When you're the, my mentor used to tell me that the, the view is always different from the captain's chair. Mm-hmm. You know, you think pe- that the leaders are making stupid decisions until you sit in their, their chair and you realize, oh, there's other things <laughs> I have to consider now. Sure. So, there, that's part of it. But um, having that training, but part of it is also, and I think the pandemic has forced this, hopefully, is I think too many leaders, too many nonprofit leaders equate button seat with work and job performance. And we see this with major gift fundraisers. They're best doing their best work in a non-pandemic when they're not in their seat when they're out with donors. But a lot of executive directors get really bent out of shape about that. They're never around. Why can't I see them? Blah, blah, blah. You know, totally not understanding the nature of major gift fundraising which is another problem. If you run a nonprofit, you should figure out how your revenue has worked. <laughs> That's kind of incumbent on the leadership role, just saying. Um, so I think there's the idea of trying to figure out what's the real work that we're doing here. And um, when we did the uh, leadership survey, we found that most CEOs aren't getting any performance reviews mm-hmm. uh, on an annual basis or any other basis. And I'm not into annual performance reviews just for that, but I think we all need to know what's the work that we're, is ours to do and then, what how how are we doing with it? When you have those documentation things, then you have stuff that you can put in an H R file. You can have agreements that you can put in an HR file. So I think one of the reasons people are afraid to let people go is because of what would it look like in the community or what are the legal ramifications? Um, and so uh, you you kind of should know that as a for your your state or locality um, if you're doing that. If you're a leader and it's never the fun stuff. You didn't get into it, to fire people, (laughs) you got to do do this work to do good. But, um, I, I do think that, um, the other fear is there's never enough time for all the work. And if you, even if the person's doing something incredibly poorly, at least they're doing something and you know, that it's all going to come on you and the people around you, if you let that person go. But, um, in my, yeah, almost 20 years of coaching, I have seen every time and in actually leading uh, get firing volunteers is one of the hardest things to do, but you can fire volunteers or donors. Some donors are just toxic and you, they, yeah. they're not helping you. And it's, they're not worth the gift that they're bringing to the organization. It's amazing to see executive directors kind of sit up straight or like, I, I can fire them. Yeah. It's, yeah. You won't necessarily tell them you're firing them, but you stop asking them right for money and you stop giving them all that time that they're sucking up out of, you know, sucking away from your life. But, having those conversations with people and letting them go um, is actually merciful for everyone. And I think maybe it's helpful to remember that if they're miserable in your location, they may be miserable people, but there may be a better fit for them somewhere else. And so for helpers of people and helpers of, you know, people that are trying to preserve the planet and preserve animals and all, it may be helpful to realize that releasing them to their best thing could be the real gift. And I've seen that happen too, where we let people go, uh, that it not only increases the morale in the organization, but it also, the other person's in a much better place later. Um, They may never thank you because- Sure. But that's that's neither here nor there. This is where outsiders can be really helpful, uh, whether it's an outside peer or a coach or consultant or something, because it must happen so slowly that organizations, the systems adapt to the codependency of one person Uh, It could be the executive director, it could be a board member, it's often the founder, sorry founders, love you, God you found stuff, you you create stuff, but um, it's often also, I remember one prep school uh, in New England that had the entire, the receptionist was supposed to be the person that greeted people, and she hated doing that, and she was just bitter, (laughs) And so she actually, no joke, in their entryway for their, their uh, admissions office, they had her entire, she was in the lobby, like she had a desk in the lobby, she had put up uh, wall dividers. Oh, wow. So that there was, you know, those (laughs) temporary office dividers, and then they they had put a slit in there so she could at least see people walking in, she put a big stuff, a big plant there to block that. Um, but nobody had the courage to say, this isn't acceptable, this is your wow. job, if you don't want to do your job, that's fine, we need to find somebody else who will. Uh, was, wow. It was shocking, yeah. <laughs> and then the longer you kind of sit with that, the harder that gets, that conversation gets. Um,
1: yeah, you know, it's interesting, I, I ran into an organization just to, to talk about how how ingrained it gets into a culture. I ran into an organization a year or so ago where we were starting to uncover some uncomfortable things and and have some tough conversations. And and they kept referencing, I'm going to call her Mary. That wasn't her name. Okay, good. (laughs) Mary, this and this and this, Mary. And I said, well, can we just get Mary in the room? And then they said, well, she hasn't worked here in eight years. (sighs) But it was so ingrained in them. And it was so much a part of their culture that they were afraid of Mary, even after she was gone for almost a decade. Wow. You know, it's just so sad to think about all of the, the joy and progress and opportunity that, they, right. that just passed by them because of that kind of mentality. So I, I think this is oh. one of the biggest issues facing organizations. And I, I wish that more leaders could address this head on because I think it's so important for their people
0: even if it means one or two years of looking for the employee. And I know that that's not a a light thing to say, but um, I think this is where having other peers that you can talk to can be really helpful because this is not an, un- people are, are are complex. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say that. I was yeah. going to say messed up, but because I had three <laughs> fingers pointing back at me, but um, the having, so it's not a new, unique situation um, and having other peers to be able to talk to can be just really helpful because there may be perspective on, on ways that they uh, could, and it may be that you're just not managing well. You might just need to manage somebody a little bit differently. Like I love Veritas Groups. Uh, It's not just about the money. That book they talk about a major donor uh, dashboard that allows managers to have really clear conversations with major gift officers, and it helps the major gift officers who aren't necessarily the best at data. They're more people tend to be more people people um, to actually get some some trajectory and some cash flow analysis into their relationships that they're trying to manage um, it's just a spreadsheet, but it's, uh, it brings a transparency and openness to that kind of conversation. So you can actually track, did you do what you said you were going to do? And it's not as punitive as it could be. It may become punitive. I've worked with some people where, uh, the organization's brought me in for that. Um, but it could be just conversational. No, their business didn't sell. So I didn't ask them this month. I'm going to, you know, ask them in a few months. I'm going to check in with them in a few months, but it seems like they're in a state of flux. You know, that's yeah. fine as long as they know why their For sure. decisions that makes are made. Sense. Yeah.
1: So let's let's go in a little more positive direction. Um, Yay. I, I'm curious to know, like, of all the leaders you've encountered in your career, when when you think about the most effective three or four leaders that you've encountered, is there something that they, as a cohort, do that's uniquely different from all the rest? And anything we can learn and sort of standardize across behaviors or, or perspectives?
0: So I'm thinking of three and they're all very different personality types. One's a <laughs> an introvert, another one is a former CEO who's now leading a nonprofit and is brilliant at it, um, but prefers the, the accounts thing and the spreadsheets. Another person's a total extrovert. Um, I think the, the thing that's coming to mind right now is that they don't believe their own press. <laughs>
1: Love um,
0: that. And I, I love leaders like that. They're they're I call them the the Pevensey's. I don't know if you remember the Chronicles of Narnia, but in the movie, okay. the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the Pevensey children were talking to the beavers, and the the kids at one point the beavers are talking about the prophecy that they're going to be these kings and queens and all this stuff. And they said, "I think you've got the wrong people. We're not kings and queens. We're we're from Finchley." And I really wanted to call my company Finchley, the Finchley Leadership Group, because I love Finchley Leaders, but there was a copyright issue because it was in a Disney movie and they have a lot of lawyers and I didn't want them. Yes, they my do. lawyer <laughs> and I decided it might be a bad choice. So, um, But that kind of, they have the ability to not take, to believe their own press, not to, to think too highly of themselves, but they're willing to grow into what they, they become. And so there's, it's not a false humility. It's knowing what they're really good at and not being threatened by people that are excelling around them. I guess I hadn't, I hadn't verbalized that before, but a lot of leaders are afraid of the people that are excelling around them.
1: So next question is, you know, I, and maybe this is changing, I hope it's changing, but um, <laughs> in, in my experience, even in the recent past, I've not seen a high percentage of leaders in our sector, um, whether they're CEOs, executive directors, or boards, you know, intentionally developing talent pipelines or formal yeah. succession plans in their organizations what are some thoughts that you have around how leaders could even start to take some baby steps into that i thank you for
0: bringing this up because this is talk about that well we found this um there's the 2016 nonprofit leadership sector nonprofit sector leadership report people can google and get it for free but there's also the wake-up call which was the 2018 one uh, with adrian Sargent doing the research and we have seen that strong succession planning clear professional development needs being met and um, a a solid strategic planning process in the organization has a significant correlation with a culture of philanthropy. Mm. So I think a lot of people are so focused on the new money and the new donors or the new whatever that they don't take the time to actually build the organization. One of my Concord Leaders podcast guests talked about, and I'm not sure, I think it's from a book, but the idea of getting off the dance floor and up into the balcony, and just looking to make sure the right dance is being danced, mm. um, and so that's those are some things that leaders can do. Uh, it doesn't have to be really hard. Part of the part of the succession planning is helping people grow into the right talent, uh, grow into who they are. So it, it's just at a hospital we had a leadership development institute, and we asked the middle managers, "What do you need?" Turns out they needed. They felt like at this hospital they needed Excel spreadsheet training okay. Huh. They figured Extremely they not a lot of time. Yeah. And it's, it's a commodity. It's a cheap training. Yeah. Um, and, and it was a high value for them. Like this will make my life so much simpler. Wow. So it's just asking, what, what do you have the tools you need to do your job? And not promising thing, not making promises that you're not going to be able to keep, but it's also, I, I think one of the things that really saddens me in, uh, in our sector in the nonprofit sector anyway, is that often you have to leave hmm. to get promoted yeah. Um, you have to be hired into another organization where uh, so we're gen- we're constantly losing institutional memory and and uh, social capital. The relationships that we build up, whether we're programs, people or fundraising people are constantly in churn because we don't have that kind of thought process on how we're going to groom somebody to stay. The flip side is I think we got to have to be really honest with ourselves that we're everybody's temporary. I mean, not on life. I'm not trying to be a downer again, but that is, <laughs> life is a fatal disease. Sure, yes. Um, <laughs> but it's the the idea of if if I have this person for just a certain amount of time, how can I leave them better? Hmm. It, it takes a different mindset shift because it moves you from being the person who's leading the, the homeless shelter or the historical society or the, or the spay and neuter clinic to being the person that is grooming new leaders and, mm-hmm. and helping raise up a whole new leaders that are going to leave. But what a great legacy for a leader to be the one where all the other people, the leaders in the nonprofits around them, had had like an internship or time in in under you. I mean yeah. I think that would be just a, an amazing legacy to leave.
1: Well it seems like like in that kind of thought process, you're you're really turning the conversation from one of people as you know, human capital or resources and and more so to these are assets,
0: right? Interesting. And and
1: so we, we, we want to to cultivate
0: them them and treat them well and develop them because they're valuable. So one easy way to do this, and, and I'm not, uh, you know, this is, I'm not a, like a spreadsheet guy, but this is another spreadsheet. Um, I've actually started doing one of the most amazing things of working with businesses is they don't know the relationship stuff that we know from fundraising. Okay. Um, and so I get to take major gift stuff to businesses and work it with clients and contracts. And they're all oh, like, interesting. What a that's genius. I never <laughs> thought of I should maybe be talking to the person before I get to the the sales meeting or having intentional just thinking of you notes. So what I've done with uh, some managers as particularly ones that have um, problematic employees, but also some that don't, is taken that major donor spreadsheet and just make it a managerial spreadsheet. Who are your employees? What's the goal that you want for them for by the end of the year, or what's the goal they want for themselves? Is there a certification is there something else? And, what um, maybe some notes, and then each of the months of the year, and what he has to happen in each month to help them get there, and it could be just a quick note um, or checking in on that. And yeah, there's one one consultant um, to fraternities. I, I don't remember uh, where he's based out of, but he even hired a, dr- a dream coach. They called it where it was somebody outside the system that each employee had access to, and it was only for the for the specific. Requirement of working on something that wasn't work related, huh. some dream that you had in your life. What you found is that it increased employee retention and increased employee satisfaction. And they had a celebration every summer where they celebrated somebody achieving their dream. Oh, that's cool. And it, it became that huh. magnet of other people wanted to work there and they were doing that great work and the client satisfaction went up. So it's, I think it, there's a lot of counterintuitive things in working with human beings. And one of them is that when you start tapping into why people, you can actually unleash some amazing creativity. Uh, my friend Brant Mansour wrote a book called Black Sheep that talks about core values and how if we know our five our five core values or six, um, we know what we're gonna be feeding every day. They're, they're, mm-hmm. Those are our black sheep. Black sheep are the ones that have the indelible wool, they can't be dyed. Um, and we can have the freedom to not necessarily feed other people's core values, but we can also figure out how to direct their work based on our core values. Um uh, and, and values, I, I continue. I mean, we started out the conversation with that, but values I feel like are an incredibly important part of leadership that yeah. um and it's low-hanging fruit. It's I mean, it's as easy as just googling values inventory. I've got one at uh, Concord Leadership Group.com slash values if anybody wants it, but there are a million out there. And you could just look at a list of words and see the ones that kind of le- make your make you sing, make you feel happy or joy or seem like, yeah, this is right. And then you take that list and figure out which ones do I actually have stories to show that I've done this? Because some of our core values, what we call core values, are actually aspirational. Sure. That we makes want sense. that to be true of ourselves. Yep. And that's good. It's good to have things that we, we're reaching for. <laughs> but to know what the true ones are can be, um, well, for me, it just I, I, with the major gifts, I, I found out that independence was one of my core values when I did one of these sorters. It just seemed like a no-brainer to me. But it helped me significantly because in major gifts, the promotions path leads to very frustrated fundraisers having to manage people. Yeah, they love the they love the job of of asking for money. They love working with donors and they get more and more removed because they are getting promoted into more and more management positions. I don't want that. So yeah. I could be a manager, that would be the next thing, but I chose other things that looked, makes my resume look really messed up, but <laughs> but the, my life's enjoyment was much more. And I think I was better um, for it. And, and some of the best managers of, of major gifts officers that I've found are people that don't know fundraising at all, but they know people.
1: I would agree. I mean, it's, it's. I, I think that's why a lot of people leave the industry or or jump jobs, right? You know, because they get promoted into this role because it's the only way to get them higher compensation or more recognition in the organization. And and so you put them in this role where they're just completely bad fit and they're not enjoying it and you're not enjoying it. And you either end up having to terminate them or they self-select out. And then to your earlier point, you lose all that institutional knowledge and you lose those
0: relationships with donors. And if there's a face saving way of releasing them to do what they're great at and what brought them to the organization originally, that would be great, but often it's I, I've seen people actually. Well, I've seen people accept emotions, but I've seen boards give demotions to people after the board shouldn't be doing that anyway. Actually, it was the CEO, but there it was. It was just a confusing situation because yeah. they promoted someone into an area that wasn't great, but then the job description for the part that they we were great was at a different grade level, and they, yeah, the person ended up leaving because. Yeah. Um, it just, yeah, it doesn't make sense, but we've gone all over the place. We, we have. Great. We're going to go in a them. completely
1: different direction now. The, the two areas of, of data and technology seem to move incredibly fast and, and much faster so than our sector. I'm curious to get your thoughts on how you see or if you see emerging technologies and trends in data shaping the nonprofit leadership landscape in any different way as you look at you know, what might be on the horizon.
0: And this is where I feel clueless because I am so into people and helping people be better <laughs> that I don't keep tra- abreast of, the, um, of the, the different technology. I think some of the things that are happening that are intriguing to me are the cryptocurrency. The people that talk about <laughs> FinTech, financial technology and cryptocurrency see the world fundamentally different. Um, When I talk to them about the nonprofit sector, it makes what I do working with leaders kind of polishing a dusty beat up car when they're actually like transforming systems uh, entirely. So I think it's a, a, there's something there, but I'm not sure what it is. And there's something with the... Uh, we live in a wonderful time where social media and CRMs can really help guide the behaviors that we want, or we can help them, use them to build up that kind of system that reinforces the behaviors we want. Like talking to people at certain times, setting up tracks for working with people, uh, reminding us to follow up. I mean, something as simple as followupthen.com. It's an email service that's free where if I were emailing you and you, I just did this today. Somebody said, could you follow up with me in a couple of months? So in the BCC I put two months at followupthen.com. And I know in two months it'll pop back into my inbox. That's brilliant. And it's the email that they said it and I can just reply to it and say, if you put it in the CC, it pops into their inbox too. So you don't want to do that. You do it in okay. the BCC. <laughs> but you can. But then you can reply back to them. Hey, you, you asked me to follow up with you. Is this a good time? Huh. Um. So there's there's there are definitely technologies that are there, and I think um, AI is going to really help us. Um, I think there's a promise to help us really customize the work or make express in a, a non manipulative, non grinding way what we do well. And um, so that there's ways that we can then reward that with the people we we live with. But for me, I'm still spreadsheets and email.
1: (laughs) So So, so in that vein, though, (laughs) let's say AI, and and I agree with you, I think that there's going to be a ton of value that comes out of the the AI space. Is there a different skill set that leaders need or a different perspective they need to bring to the table to be able to take advantage of that kind of thing?
0: I'm sure there is. I the one that comes to mind is the openness to -hmm. change and to learning, but with a healthy dose of not uh, of avoiding shiny objects syndrome. Yes, because um, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, because it's so easy, right? I mean, TikTok comes along and everybody's going to be fundraising on TikTok. No, they don't. (laughs) Right. Some Um, of them are still trying to figure out their ice bucket challenge oh that hurts (laughs) That so hurts. but you're right so there's this mimicry thing and and it's tough because i think what what is i think the if people have a good motive underneath that it's not wanting to miss out not wanting to mess up their organization or miss out for something um but i i am amazed at how consistent human beings have been for millennia like we still communicate one-on-one and we found out with fundraising that talking to a person in a letter like we talk to them in real life is actually more engaging than trying to give a whole brochure to them or or talk about ourselves and be all trying to impress them with our awesomeness yeah um so there's a lot more that's the same that's why i love the human i taught social media in colleges and universities for a while and the tech kept changing Um, and so that's what I love about the, the stuff that is in surprising gift of doubt and the stuff that I do with coaching, because it's, it's people skills. It's, it's learning how to speak the dialect of different, uh, types of people and trying to, to be the better, the best person that you are here with your uniqueness. So I think those are things that the, that leaders could always invest in. Well, yeah, <laughs> um, sure. as they're trying to learn, uh, it, it's tough though, because it being a nonprofit leader in particular, it, you're getting pulled apart. Uh, there's, you're not the boss cause there's a board, uh, and the people that you serve aren't the ones that are creating the revenue in a business. You know, you serve clients and they, they pay you bills, you're, they pay you a fee and the better you serve them, the more revenue you generate. In a nonprofit, you don't have the authority to make a lot of the decisions cause the board is overseeing you. Right. And- um your revenue is coming from this whole other source which is most people don't get into nonprofits to to learn to speak to donors effectively right to get into it to do some other social good in the world and yep. uh so one of the things that would be helpful for in that vein this is a total freebie you didn't ask me this is i think it surprises executive directors how much time the board takes mm-hmm. the board doesn't know how to do its job it doesn't it's and we don't do a good job as a sector training board members on how to be good board members. You don't onboard them. Typically we don't onboard them well. So um, board member board management for some of my, my clients is, is 30% of their hourly time. Yeah. Um. And, and it becomes better. It, you know, the, the, it, the way Stephen Covey, I'm a Franklin Covey certified coach. So I quote him a lot, but Stephen Covey he, uh, used to say that to go fast with people, you have to go slow because when you get it right, then you can accelerate when the foundation is secure. And, but so there's a, I think it's, yeah, being willing to take more time and, and let your team know this is what I'm doing. I'm intentionally investing in the board because yeah. I want to protect you and make sure that we're our organization is um, as strong as it can be.
1: Well, it's such a good point. Though. I mean, I've served on three boards, I think, at this point. And the extent of any training that I've received across the entire three uh, was like 30 minutes with a lawyer. for Wow. You know, here's how to not get a suit, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's interesting. That's more. I just joined two boards in the last month, and yeah, I haven't I got a lot of email. <laughs> yeah, yeah for sure. And uh, handbooks, but not not handbooks about the organization, either. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. One of the things I love to do, so if anybody's listening, when I did this with the hospital. Um, all nonprofits are created to solve good. They're all created by generosity. So finding the philanthropic story of your organization can be really, really exciting and and can help set up your fundraising well in the organization because you're not asking anybody to do anything that the, or, the organization is already a generous, and is, is has already attracts people of generosity with their time, talent, and treasure. So as you start kind of telling the founding story, even if you can't talk about the founders so much anymore, if that's an issue with you, you can talk about the, the type of people that support our organization. I, I found yeah. out in my hospital, it was six physicians that got together, pulled their own money, and created a hospital to serve the community's needs. <laughs> I was t- telling that story. I had it put on the donor wall right outside the busiest hallway, right at the ER, because I wanted all doctors to know. This is right. what doctors do at our organization.
1: <laughs> For sure. All right. Well, we're almost about out of time. Let's let's end yeah. on this. What's one piece of encouragement or guidance that you'd love to share with nonprofit leaders who are listening in today?
0: Truly, if you sense that you're 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 feeling doubt in your leadership ability whether it's you know again as senior leader board member emerging leader wherever you are on your path doubt doesn't mean you're broken mm. there could be things that you you may be broken you and there we have we live in a culture that has a lot of good access to therapists and other things which is totally fine but the doubt could actually mean you're on the verge of greatness because you're going to push in and stop just looking at external cues and look to see what your internal wiring and your own cues are. And that will make you just blossom as a leader. So be encouraged. If you're feeling doubt, that is a very normal part of the process. Nobody just tends to talk about it because we think that's a bad leadership trait. I love that. Thank you, Mark. Thanks
1: for being here. Appreciate you sharing your, your wisdom uh, with us. How do people reach out to you if they want to connect with you?
0: I should be on all the socials. Mark is with the C. Pittman is with one T. Um, the, uh, to, to find out more about the book, go to surprisinggiftofdoubt.com. That will redirect to the Concord Leadership Group site, uh, whatever page I happen to have the information on there. Um, and if people want to just get started, I mentioned before, so uh, concordleadershipgroup.com slash values will get you a free value sorter um, that you can use for yourself and for your organization. I'm really responsive on Twitter. That's probably my favorite uh, social media outlet still. Okay, cool. Thanks again for being here, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.